Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, November the 23rd, 2022, a day before Thanksgiving, and politics won't go away. Um, we are surrounded with it. Um, a few months ago, I did a show with Rebecca Carruthers, uh, wonderful, uh, a wonderful woman from the Fair Election Center. And we talked about whether or not uh, this January 6th insurrection represented in some ways a uh, an existential threat to American democracy. And as it happens, my friends at uh, Intelligence Squared um, have asked Rebecca and I to do a debate about this, about the existential threat of January 6th on American democracy in, uh, in New York in December. So I'm excited about that. And I wanted to start with my guest today, an old friend. He's been on the show today, Robert Draper, one of America's leading journalists, political journalists. Um, on this question, he has a new book out, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. It's a, a narrative really from January 6th to 2022 of the Republican Party and the radical right-wing arm of that party. And I, I thought we might begin with Robert, who's joining us from his office in Washington, D.C. today, Robert. Um, in your mind, was January 6th, uh, did it represent an existential threat to American democracy? Yes. I mean, it, it, um, it, it signaled the frailty of our democracy in multiple ways, Andrew. I mean, it's, um, you know, one of... Uh, one of those was the roadmap, you know, provided by the then president, Donald Trump, for uh, how to um, uh, disrupt and maybe even rupture uh, the peaceful transition of power. But the other is, is when you focus on the, um, the 2000 or so people who were inside the Capitol that day illegally, um, uh, they provide the other half of, of uh, my title, the, the mass deluded, uh, the people who um, were like tens of millions of others um, uh, proceeding under the shared delusion that the 2022 or the 2020 election was stolen. And uh, that was the animating force for them, along with President Trump uh, in his December the 18th um, be there will be wild tweet uh, to come to Washington, D.C., not just to support him and cheer him on and make him feel better, but uh, to be by his side as they marched on the Capitol. That had always been the intention and the very notion of uh, of overturning a uh, democratically held, perfectly legal presidential election um, by physical force uh, is almost by definition uh, an existential threat to democracy. So what were you doing on January 6th? I know this represents the beginning of the book. You live in D.C. You weren't, of course, a demonstrator, but you were out on the streets, Robert, weren't you? Like a good journalist. Well, I was inside first. I, I, um, I actually I got the contract to do this book, Andrew, in, in December of 2020, late December. And I really, you know, just before the Christmas holidays and my first day on the job reporting. Sorry to jump in, Robert, you got the contract, but I assume January 6th wasn't written in. You had no idea, obviously, what was going to No, be. in fact, it wasn't clear what the book was going to be, except, you know, the Republican Party after Trump's presidency. The assumption was that there was a fracture within the party. 
uh, between those who were unswervingly loyal to Trump and those who believed that the party would do well to move on from Trump. But it wasn't clear to me at all how that would play out. And Andrew, at the time I got the contract, roughly December the 20th, Trump hadn't yet conceded the election, but the widely held assumption was that he would at some point. He was just stalling for time. Uh, certainly there was no notion that uh, anything uh, of the sort that occurred on January the 6th would transpire. So I showed up that morning, probably around 1030 in the morning, to do interviews with Republicans that I knew. That day was going to be the formal certification of the electoral votes. We knew that there would be a challenge to that certification by certain Republicans. It seemed to be totally futile. They, they wouldn't have the numbers to do it. But I was curious about the strategy, talked to some of them about it, and then hung out um, in the Capitol itself around the time of the certification. I wasn't able to get to the, into the press gallery because of social distancing, because COVID was um, changing the rules. And so I just kind of wandered around uh, the uh, rotunda and then looked to my west and saw um, Capitol Police officers charging up the stairs, obviously in a state of distress. I headed toward where they were charging from, towards the doors leading to the west terrace. And that's when I saw more police pour in um, beaten and maced, uh, their their faces swollen, uh, running around trying to find water to flush their eyes out. I and uh, an administrative staffer in the Capitol set up a kind of ad hoc um, uh, water station uh, by the metal detectors where the officers could flush their eyes out. And I began to talk to them and, and saw more coming in and one of them on a stretcher. And, and uh, then they dragged in uh, some guy with a patch on his shoulder, uh, wearing paramilitary gear, a patch on his shoulder that said, fuck Antifa. Uh, and, uh, and it was clear that the place was about to blow. And so after being there for maybe 45 minutes, I did, um, to directly answer your question, then managed to make my way outside to the east side of the Capitol and was there with the hordes um, as they proceeded ultimately to push in and breach the Capitol from the east side. It's interesting. We did a show also a few months ago with Luke Mogelson. I'm sure you know him, who also has written, he's written a book about January 6th and his experience. He's an overseas New York Times correspondent who was there on January 6th. You've traveled around the world, Robin. In fact, the last time you were on the show, you were talking about your book uh, on the Iraq war. To what extent um, was your experience on January 6th like your experience overseas in insurrections, unrest, civil war, violence and war? Did it remind you of being in East Africa or the Middle East in some way or form? Well, uh, you're right that in... Um, in doing my work for National Geographic, and for the last 15 years, I've split my time between Geographic and the New York Times. I've worked in a lot of conflict zones, ranging from Libya to Somalia to Madagascar after the government was overthrown, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, and have certainly been in dangerous areas, have certainly seen ineffectual uh, governments, but I'd never seen a government get overthrown. I, I would have expected if I'd seen um, that sort of thing, a storming of um, uh, a government building that it would have been in one of those countries, um, that it happened in the U.S., uh, and, and in particular, in this bastion of democracy, the capital, a place where I spent so much time, was cognitively dissonant to me and, and really you know, hard for me to 
internalize what I was seeing with my own eyes. But especially when I was outside and seeing the mob push its way in and hearing, you know, this kind of, you know, visceral roar of the crowd, it seemed to me that that um, this mob was capable of anything and that violence was going to be a very natural consequence. The miracle, Andrew, is that um, I say a miracle. I mean, it was because of the um, heroic assistance of the Capitol Police that that, um, that Vice President Mike, Mike Pence, that Speaker Nancy Pelosi, that other members of Congress weren't encountered by the mob, because if they were, there would have been bodily harm. There's just no question about it. So this, what you call cognitive dissonance, marks the beginning of the book. You didn't know what the book was going to be about. And I assume on January 6th, when you were going through all this, you began to understand the narrative of the book. It was certainly going to start there. In terms of, you use this phrase, cognitive dissonance, uh, dissonance not dissidence. Um, was that the, the climax of this cognitive dissident, dissonance between 2020 and 2022? Or has it grown? You've done a lot of um, real reporting, Robert. You're mm-hmm. one of the few American journalists who actually go out. You've, you've, been, you've been following a lot of the, the odd characters now who make up the Republican Party, from Marjorie Taylor Greene to Matt Gates. Um, to uh, Lauren Boebert and so on in, in Colorado, Arizona, Florida. Um, to what extent has the last two years been, at least in your experience, um, a period of what we might say mass uh, dissonance? Yeah, well, so to answer your question, Andrew, um, no, the cognitive dissonance did not um, uh, dissolve after January the 6th. Uh, by you know, it it quickly became clear to me um, after the sixth that the story of my book would really be the fork in the road that the Republican Party had come to. And the assumption was that um, uh, that having um, been an enabler of January the sixth because of the things they said to egg on the insurrectionists, that the Republican Party would take stock of that you know, very grim reality and say, this is not who we are. This is not what we can be. This is a a democracy can't endure a two-party system where one of the parties um, is fomenting this kind of activity. And so we'll do all we can to purge um, ourselves from those corrosive elements. That was the seemingly obvious choice, but at this fork in the road, um, the Republican Party went the other way and sort of doubled down and and, uh, became a host body for extremism and for disinformation. I mean, it's it's, um, and uh, that to me has been the more sobering reality. You mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, among others, and we can certainly talk about her um, uh, because I spent a great deal of time with Greene, the first person in the mainstream media to do so. But, you know, the the more concerning elements that my book focuses on are the tens of millions of people who've been deluded by the weapons like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who insists not only that the election was stolen, but also that January the 6th was drummed up by the FBI or by, by Antifa, that maybe it was a setup that Nancy Pelosi participated in, that COVID vaccines are killers um, or, you know, something that are part of a new world order that China is in charge of with Biden as their puppet. These kind of lies which which are not dissimilar to the conspiracy theory QAnon of which um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was an adherent 
still um, are animating forces within the Republican Party. And so that that we would arrive at this point um, where one of the two parties um, has its own set of, uh, as Kellyanne Conway uh, memorably put it, alternative facts, its own, that the, the truth is up for grabs in this party is itself, you know, a feat of cognitive dissonance. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Dana New uh, Milbank's new book. He was on the sure. show. Um, he's the, uh, the left-wing columnist, for, as you know, for the Washington Post. He has a new book out, The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, more of a I mean, I think it, it takes your argument, but it's more of a historical approach. <clears throat> if you were to write a history of this losing of its mind, where would you begin, Robert? Yeah, well, thanks for drawing the distinction, because you're right. I mean, Dana's book, you know, I like Dana and admire him a great deal, is, you know, intended to be a history book. My, I used the word when rather than how the Republican Party lost its mind, because I'm I'm focusing on a window in time, roughly sixteen months. Yeah, they're, they're good months. books. Actually, read together. Begin with Millback and then yeah. go on to yours. I don't think that sure. there's a yeah. lot of uh, dissonance between the two books. Right, but it's but I do address this in my book. Andrew did this was not some overnight proposition, and the notion that Trump, to use the phrase that's also often used, hijacked the Republican Party, is to presuppose that the party was wholly innocent. Um, and bore no responsibility for the hijacking, uh, and that it was a perfectly healthy vessel um, before uh, the hijacker-in-chief uh, made off with it. And neither of those is true. Uh, just to take one example, uh, when Trump began saying over and over that the 2020 election you know, was stolen, it was a not unfamiliar argument to most Republicans who had been hearing over the years uh, that um, Democrats cheat all the time. They cheat in the inner cities. They, they, um, they're stealing. There's all these vote stealing uh, um, operations underway. No real evidence to prove this. I mean, yes, if you want to go back to 1948, when uh, when the Senate election in Texas was stolen for Lyndon Bay Johnson, you can do so. But in terms of more recent examples, um, uh, the, well, <laughs> Canada, I just read an interesting book by Paul Johnson, who's on the other side, politically, he argues that Kennedy stole the 1960 election, but that it's was also a, it's a long time ago. It was. It was 1960. But yes, it, it does appear that I mean, the, the evidence, the circumstantial evidence, I should say, is pretty convincing that um, that Mayor Daley in Chicago worked in concert with the Kennedy family to help um, uh, swing uh, the electoral returns towards um, towards Kennedy against Nixon in 1960. Still, um, the point being that Republicans, as an article of faith, have always believed this, and so it wasn't a totally bizarre notion when Trump started saying it. It's kind of like you know how Trump in 2016 started calling Hillary Clinton crooked Hillary. Well, polite society in Republican circles would never call her crooked Hillary. But he was just saying the quiet part out loud. Republicans had believed for decades that Hillary Clinton was guilty of, um, of criminal activity. They couldn't tell you which ones they were. They just had heard through talk radio, heard through their own, in, you know, and had been accepted wisdom in their own bubble that Clinton was a, a criminal. So, you know, the, um, so while I wouldn't pretend to write an exhaustive history um, of the Republican Party and how it came to be in, in possession of these fact-free notions, um, it certainly 
uh, it's safe to say that those elements well preceded Trump and that he simply ex- exploited those pre-existing so, elements. So, so let's get to the heart of the book. What, what is going on, at least in your mind? Um, you, uh, you say uh, today's news is that Musk reinstated uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene on Twitter, for better or worse. I'm not sure whether that was a good or a bad move from the point of view of Twitter. Um, what is going on? How different are the Taylor Greens and the Boberts um, from previous right-wing uh, 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 Republicans? When I look at the photo, for example, of Bobert, she just looks like another version um, of Sarah Palin. Are they different? Yeah, let's draw a sharp distinction between Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. The temptation is to view them in tandem. Um, they're both, you know, from the 2020 freshman class. They both are, you know, political performance artists. But Boebert is um, uh, uh, has been somewhat clownish, and and uh, and where Green, regardless of how outrageous. Uh, and outright false, many of her statements are, has power. And that marks the fundamental difference, uh, Andrew, between Green uh, and those of her ilk uh, and um, some of the other extreme characters we've seen in the Republican Party over the years. Steve King of Iowa, um, the white supremacist who was stripped of his committee assignments um, and ultimately primaried with the help of the Republican establishment, is a case of someone who um, kind of occupied the Star Wars bar of Republican oddities. Uh, and one would have thought that when Green came in with her fidelity to QAnon and, you know, wielding an AR-15 and talking about the squad and embracing, uh, you know, these notions of Trump's election having been stolen, that she too would have been kicked to the curb. And indeed, a month into it, she was stripped of her committee assignments. People kind of figured she'd go away and someone would successfully primary her and that'd be the end of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Fast forward to now um, that she got her Twitter account back is the least of, you know, the least metric of establishing her power. uh, Kevin McCarthy is awarding her plum committee assignments. She is sitting in on uh, uh, upper level policy discussions with the Republican Party. Uh, She uh, her endorsement was coveted by people ranging from J.D. Vance, who won uh, the U.S. Senate seat in Ohio, to Carrie Lake, who tried unsuccessfully to become governor of Arizona, though she still disputes the outcome. So Green is a... Is a okay, so I take your point interest. that Green's for yeah. real. She is, of course, from the... Um, she's uh, Northwest Georgia. representative from, from Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. but, but so what? what? What is it about Green that makes her so dangerous to why is she in her own right a weapon of mass delusion well because because for one thing she is literally spreading untruths she does it with a vast social media platform now she's not just a mouthpiece though that would be bad enough i mean i do think that you know we can say that even if republicans had no power if they're spreading lies and millions of people believe them and act on them as they did on january the 6th then that in and of itself presents a danger to democracy but now the republicans control um uh, the house or they will on january the 3rd it's going to be a threadbare majority, and we can talk about that if you wish. But the reality is they will control the legislative agenda. They will, uh, from their committee purchase, launch investigations into the Biden family. They will be 
in doing so, um, spreading in all likelihood untruths about um, about the Bidens, and this too will will uh, contribute to the demonization and dehumanization of um, of the president of the United States in terms of how. Um, tens of millions of Americans view them, uh, but it may also be that they can cut off aid to Ukraine. So that um, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that they can do. That and I'll leave it to others to. But that, um, but, but but I'm certainly no great fan of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. Isn't that democracy, Robert? I mean, they can cut off aid to Ukraine. That that's not insane. That's a tradition no, of it's not only not insane. Isolationism in American. Foreign policy yeah. has existed since the founders. So some of this that's a, credible, isn't it? Of course, some of it's credible, and some of it, and just since you and I are talking here with with your audience, I mean, given that I wrote this book on Bush's decision to invade Iraq, I think that having a fulsome discussion about where to commit our resources um, overseas is a healthy discussion to have on its face. My point is, can can they make a difference? Um, can they? Yes, and you're right that. Republicans have differing views from Democrats. If once they're in power, um, they they can they can display those differences. But when those differences are built on um, untruths, um, you know, for example, uh, you know, trying to um, investigate and criminalize Dr. Anthony Fauci, to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop because they're convinced that some quid pro quo existed, and they're convinced of this because there have been postings on Gateway Pundit and other purveyors of, of disinformation have said so, then we arrive in a totally different territory. This is not just like when Newt Gingrich, or for that matter, John Boehner became Speaker of the House and took over the Republicans. They would, you know, they would... Uh, uh, they would cut taxes, they would cut government programs, but they wouldn't build a platform based on lies. Uh, you were very kind and generous, uh, uh, Robert, to introduce me to your friend, Jonathan Carl, who came on the show. He's a very distinguished American television journalist and the author of Front Row at the Trump Show. To what extent is all this just a show, the merging of show business and fantasy and absurdity and politics? It's been written about in so many different ways, from entertaining ourselves to death to all sorts of other books. Um, the, the people listening to the, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, you call them lies, some others might call them fantasies or absurdities. Are they just a, a reflection of this merging of show business and fantasy and politics in America, which is, again, a, a long-running theme in American politics throughout the 20th century. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, that's, they're reflective of that. They're not just reflective of that, but yes, they're reflective of that. And I can trace it at least back to the early 1990s when John F. Kennedy Jr. I almost hesitate to mention his name because he's associated now with QAnon and all this other stuff. People think he's alive. But he, when he started his magazine, George Magazine, um, building on the proposition that um, that uh, politics should be covered, you know, kind of as show business and, and uh, that the, these were celebrities and the merging of politics with celebrity culture did inevitably give rise uh, to a reality TV show, um, uh, you know, star named Donald Trump, uh, then becoming president. And so, by the way, did the death of expertise that resulted from the botching of the Iraq invasion before. I mean, it, it, it did give uh, the American public a reason to believe, you know, why should we trust the Dick Cheney's and Donald Rumsfeld's? Who the hell cares if they've been in government forever 
if they still can't understand, you know, what the truth is or, or how to manage a war efficiently. But the, the word I isolated before that you use, <clears throat> Andrew, is just. I mean, it's, it's not just, um, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a trifle that, um, that now politics has become performance art when um, they are in positions of power, um, in positions of influence, and people listen to and act on that. I mean, it's just yesterday someone was uh, uh, arrested for making threats against a Democratic congressman of Michigan. He'd done so, um, uh, I think the facts are gonna show, because he had, been he had been acting on delusions that had been fed to him by political influencers and political office holders about how dangerous the Democrats are. I mentioned a guy like this in my book, a guy named Scott Haven, a Mormon um, you know, gentleman who lived in Utah, who over a period of two years made nearly 4,000 calls to the Capitol threatening to kill Democrats. He'd done so because he'd been listening to Donald Trump, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and was convinced that Democrats were demon figures and deserved to be killed. So we can say, oh, this is just, you know, performance. These are just, you know, politicians behaving like celebrities just trying to get attention. But people pay attention to them and, and act on what they say. So that's why it's a little more severe than just a spectacle. Uh, you mentioned that Bobet you think is outside the pale. She's in the news today because she didn't take the sh the shooting uh, in Colorado, the uh, LGBTQ club, very seriously. Uh, you contrast Bobet and Green, saying that one's a little bit more serious than the other. But if we were doing this show five or ten years ago, Green would be the outlier, and and oh, and sure. a serious journalist like you, Robert, might be saying, "Well, she's kind of insane. She's going to go away." At what point does this stop? At what point is it conceivable that Bobert himself might see more mainstream compared to some other lunatic who comes on and talks about God or fate or violence or mass killings or QAnon or something else? Right, right. Well, the distinction I'm drawing, Andrew, to be clear, is not a distinction in beliefs between Bobert and Green. I think that basically they occupy the same turf when it comes to that. The distinction I'm drawing is in terms of influence and power. And Bobert really doesn't have any, and Green does. I mean, Bobert, you know, Gr Green is the fourth biggest fundraiser among the 218 or 217 or so Republicans on Capitol Hill, members of the House. I mean, for a one-term uh, uh, Congresswoman, that's unheard of. Bobert is well down the list, but that money that she's raised has bought her influence within the uh, uh, within the Republican Party. Um, but look, you're you're exactly right. That I mean, the you know, I mean, Democrats as well as Republicans have had you know their crazies over the years. There are people who believe things that uh, that might play well in their own districts, but just simply are not you know. Uh, 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 the you know the, they are outliers as you say, um, but what I've watched over the last couple of years in the reporting of my book and thereafter is how the Republican Party has not moved Green out of the party, but instead has moved towards Green. And the you know the just to take an example, I mean the the you know during the Katanji uh, Brown Jackson uh, uh, hearings for uh, her nomination for the Supreme Court, when when there was the suggestion that she had coddled pedophiles, I mean this is very much in keeping with 
with the QAnon notion that Democrats, you know, are basically operating a pedophilia, you know, um, a pedophile ring uh, in the U.S. government. And Green had been saying this kind of thing for a long time. Now it's become like a talking point that Democrats coddle and groom. Um, uh, uh, you know, they, they groom children to be, you know, uh, to be gay. They bring drag queens in. All of this is like green stuff that you would have thought that the Republican Party and, and in fact did, you know, or would have a couple of decades ago said, come on, we, we don't say these kinds of things. But now they do. Now these are accepted talking points. We did a show with Jen, Jennifer Senor, wonderful mm -hmm. New York. New Yorker writer. She had a wonderful piece out on Steve Bannon, American Rasputin. Are people like Green in Bannon's pocket or is Bannon now in Green's pocket? What has happened to the old uh, right-wing establishment within the Republican Party? It seems old now. At the time, it seemed pretty new. But w w what, are the, what is the role of people like Bannon now? With role these is new members like uh, that you write about in the book, Gates and Marjorie Taylor yeah. Greene and Bobert and uh, Gosa. Yeah, I mean, uh, Steve Bannon is, of course, you know, he had been um, the publisher and CEO of Breitbart. Then he became Trump's, you know, campaign advisor. Then he uh, was his chief advisor in the White House for less than a year before he was forced out. Um, but then reinvented himself as a podcaster with his Pandemic War Room, which is highly influential in right-wing circles. Marjorie Taylor Greene, as a freshman, um, was on his program frequently, and it was a, a place where she would go when, you know, at a time when the party was trying to figure out what to do with her. They, um, they operate in each other's orbit. Um, they are allies at times. They have um, they have been on. Uh, she was on the outs with Bannon when she briefly associated herself with um, this white supremacist group led by Nick Fuentes, and um, uh, and Bannon canceled an appearance in Georgia uh, so that he would not be seen as being in association with that. But since then, um, he's gravitated back towards Green, and they speak with one voice. So they are all part of this large right wing ecosystem. Um, um, and, and it's an interesting question you asked about, you know, sort of who's controlling who, because it's very symbiotic, Andrew. I mean, it's a, the, um, uh, uh, these right-wing media groups need a Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, as, you know, their regular, uh, spokespersons and, the, and the Marjorie Taylor Greens in turn need a place to go to. I mean, it's until I, um, started interviewing Green. She'd never spoken to the mainstream media before. And, and, and still there are a lot of people on the right who refuse to do so because they think that, I mean, they've, they've poisoned their own, uh, uh, they've, you know, uh, they, they, they've convinced um, their own um, uh, listeners or their electorate that, you know, we're evil, that we're monsters. And so why would they talk to us? So they talk to each other. Is Green... Kevin McCarthy's worst nightmare come true? Or again, coming back to Bannon, are they all in some sort of sync together? I mean, McCarthy's that has a very thin majority in the House, so he has to be careful. Presumably, he could alienate both the right or the left within the Republican Party. What's That's McCarthy's right. position in all this, in, particularly in terms of your story of the weapons of, of mass delusion as the House takes over and of He's the senior Republican within the House. Sure. I dedicate a, a chapter to the subject of Kevin McCarthy, and that chapter is called The Enabler. So that 
you know, is the bumper sticker answer to your question as to um, as to what role he plays in all of this. I mean, he was the enabler of Trump, and now he'll be the enabler of Trumpism. And the things that he's um, uh, cutting Marjorie Taylor green in on ranging from committee assignments to policy discussions he's doing not just out of the goodness of his heart but because he believes um i think correctly that the MAGA um, element of the republican party is still the animating part of the republican base and until someone shouts them down and um uh, they will they will be the loudest voices in the room uh, and green is the proxy to that so uh so that's so Today, literally today, um, McCarthy and Green are allies, and uh, Green is not only supporting McCarthy's bid for the speakership, she's going to whip votes for it. Um, however, once he becomes speaker, she could very well become his worst nightmare because uh, you're exactly right. I mean, there are a number of people in the Republican Party, a number of, of members in what will be the Republican majority, uh, who don't cotton to uh, Green's views and, and who may feel like it's the responsible thing to do to raise the debt ceiling, to continue funding to Ukraine. Um, Green is going to feel altogether differently about this and she's going to put up a fight. And if McCarthy, if she doesn't get her way, then she's going to take to Twitter and to other forms of social media and there'll be hell to pay for Kevin McCarthy. So yes, it's entirely possible. And I would say even likely that she will become his worst nightmare, though for the moment um, they see things eye to eye. Robert, finally, uh, stand back from this for a little bit. I mean, in terms of, I mean, obviously, I would be curious, and I'm actually maybe you might just say something about DeSantis and and how he fits in, and whether he sees um, Taylor Green as an enemy or a friend, and whether DeSantis is is courting them, and whether he might represent a return to some degree of sanity within the party, or is he part of the problem? I mean, we know we know about Trump and I'd rather not talk about him. We've talked enough about him. Yeah, I mean, with DeSantis, uh, he's been by omission, by his silence allow on subjects like the 2020 election, allowing people to believe that, OK, he'll be, you know, a, a saner, calmer, more sensible version of Donald Trump, a more responsible figure. Um, uh, but beyond that, it's very hard to say. Uh, what kind of support he's going to muster, you know, in, in, sorry to bring his name up again, but in 2016, Trump went up against what was considered at the time to be a very formidable array of uh, candidates from Marco Rubio to Jeb Bush to Ted Cruz. Uh, to to the darling back then of the conservative movement, Scott Walker, who, you know, folded like an accordion um, at the very, very beginning. All of those guys seem like they'd be better than Trump, and Trump just mowed right through them. Uh, the notion that he won't do that to DeSantis, that DeSantis somehow will be able to weather all this, is not yet borne out by the facts. Meanwhile, a Marjorie Taylor Greene has come out, uh, Greene has come out immediately saying that she has uh, that Trump has her full-throated endorsement. I mentioned the distinction between Green and Boebert. Boebert didn't. She was more equivoc equivocal, saying that she loved Trump, but she also really, really was fascinated with DeSantos. That was noticed in MAGA world. And, um, and Boebert is, you know, <laughs> I mean, if, if not on probation, then, um, then I'd warily because of her lack of unswerving loyalty towards Trump. So these are the kinds of, you know, parlor games that are going to be played for a while. I, I just would um, suggest a, a bit of wariness and healthy skepticism towards DeSantis, because, again, 
2014, 2015, and early 2016, everyone was saying that Scott Walker um, was going to be the Superman candidate, and uh, he lasted something like three months. Uh, we'll see if DeSantis lasts longer than that. Finally, Robert, we did some shows at the beginning of the year about the possibility of civil war in the United States. Uh, some are more pessimistic than others. What's your take? I mean, at a certain point, particularly given the green and Bobert fetishization of violence and justification for violence and seeming complete disrespect and disdain for democracy, at what point does your argument in weapons of mass delusion when the Republican Party lost its mind, at what point could this conceivably degenerate just into a a complete collapse of the system, if not full-on civil war, a kind of fragmented civil war of pockets of violence all over the country and everything falls to pieces um, and make America like the kind of country that you've covered on your global travels for National Geographic? Yeah, I think that, that I mean, the worst case scenario is, as you just finished describing it, kind of fragmented pockets of violence rather than, say, full on secession and wars between the states, uh, the federal government going against particular states uh, that all of that seems unlikely to me. Um, but uh, but if you, you know, with the continued incentivizing of the right wing media ecosystem to pump out these lies and the willingness of elected officials to spread those lies from their platform, then um, the then yeah, the likelihood is is unfortunately quite strong that there will be millions of individuals who believe that America, as they know it, has gone that that um, uh, that the Democrats are are bent on destroying America as they know it, and and that elections are now um, uh, hopelessly corrupted forcing them to take up arms. I, 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 my concern is less about a, f a full-on civil war or even about pockets of violence. My concern is, um, unless what you're describing as pockets of violence is a repetition of January the 6th. I think that whether it's at the Capitol or some other uh, uh, place like that, that could be the locus of violent activity. I'm afraid that um, absent any kind of, you know, uh, self-reflection and, and, uh, and truth-telling that, um, that those fragments of violence will be inevitable.